starting right now. It's going. It's recording. We're I'm here. really glad. Yeah. Uh, welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director. I'm sitting here with Domeka Parker. Domeka, how are you doing right now? I'm very well, thank you I'm, for asking. I'm doing excellent as well. Did I ask you how you were? No, but I wanted to respond. Okay. <laughs> we could, I could ask you how you are if you wanted to try it. I mean, you can if you want to. I've already answered those, so like my answer okay, is so in the air. The anticipation wouldn't... Yeah, yeah, oh. it's not the same. All right. Um... So, for, uh, for the listener who is not familiar with you, can you give a history of yourself in the thea- theatrical slash improv world that led you to being the artistic director of the Deep End Theater, the founder and artistic director of the Deep End Theater? Certainly. So I was born to two improvisers who were working popular actors in Portland, Oregon. Um, both regularly featured in arts and entertainment magazines and that sort of thing. Very, very um, well-known and highly respected actors who, um, as working actors, didn't make a lot of money. So I was also raised in a certain level of poverty, <laughs> um, despite their success. So as I grew up, I uh, was often in their classrooms and in their rehearsal spaces and in the wings of their plays and in the green rooms of their plays because we couldn't afford babysitters. So I quite literally was raised in the theater. Um, As I finished college and was a a grown-up, growing person, I decided to make this theater that I loved so much um, more and more of my life. And I started teaching improvisational theater Uh, The first class that I taught, I was 13, but I didn't really start doing it professionally until I was in my 20s. The first class you taught, you were 13. I was. I have a wonderful black and white photo of of me teaching my uh, first improv class um, to a group of kids who were probably 10 and 11, and my father is there in the background making sure I'm doing it well. (laughs) Um, But the first time I performed improvisationally, I was nine, uh, and I was put in... Uh, because an adult had dropped out of a big competition at the last minute. And so my dad threw me in, and our team came second in the citywide theater sports tournament. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, it was great. So it's just been alive for me for a long time. But once I started teaching uh, in my 20s, my friend Mary Rose and I started a school um, called the Jumping Off Place, and it was really designed to um, engage people who wanted to break out of their shell using improvisational theater, people who wanted to break into theater through improvisational theater. And that was really successful and really exciting and interesting. Uh, And soon I became involved in creating an improv group of, of my own so that I could be performing regularly. And that group was performing at different theaters around town. At that time, the primary theater for improv was Brody. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I was part of their ensemble. And before I knew it, I was the artistic director there. (laughs) That uh, really happened um, just like taking a breath. Um, I was the artistic director there for two years and learned a lot about what it means to be an artistic director and what that task entails. And as you know, because you've talked to a lot of people about it, it's quite a bit of work. And there are a lot of pros and there are even more cons. 
And I recognized that if I was going to be artistic director of a theater, I needed to lessen the cons by giving myself all the freedom there is in owning your own space and answering only to yourself. So now I can not only have that artistic freedom of artistic direction, but I can also have the business freedom to make the business choices that I want to make in relationship with my artistic direction. Yeah. Hence the deep end. Exactly. Uh, perfect. So I like to start out my interviews with the same question, and it is a big, ambiguous question. It's kind of the driving force behind this podcast. Feel free to answer it in any way, shape, or form you wish. But the question is simply, what is your artistic direction? What gives me direction or... Sure. Yeah, what, what, what gives you direction... Yeah, what gives you direction? What 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 drives you forward? What What is the... This. I know it's a podcast, this, so I can't, you can't like, see that you can't his see arms the are jettisoning yes, from his exactly. body quickly forward <laughs> and, and almost colliding with his computer screen. No. So my artistic direction uh, comes from my understanding and vision. Growing up in the theater community, I watched improvisational theater um, used as a tool to strengthen actors, used as a tool by directors to strengthen performances. I watched it then become uh, a performance craft of its own. Um, and then those actors began to teach improv to non-actors. And then those non-actors began to teach improv to um, non-actors and, and on and on it went. And I watched improv uh, or improvisational theater become improv. Uh, which fell away from the theater um, and it felt kind of like improv performances to me were shorthand uh, for improvisational theater and I think that they became two wildly different animals improvisational theater and improv. When that de-evolution happened not only was a new art and craft born but also kind of a, a, a monster wherein mm. there was a lot of lackadaisical and mediocre performances that seemed really repetitious yeah, repetitious yeah. um and it felt to me like the bar had just been lowered um and where I saw improv done really wonderfully, um, I would find that if I revisited that theater on another night, I would see the same show or some very close I see. version of that show. And I had a desire and still have a desire with every project that I do to give improv back to the theater in some ways um, and to give improv also back to the actor. I want the improvisers at my theater to be actors who specialize in improvisational theater as opposed to improvisers. When we say that we're improvisers, we say it with a capital I, yeah. which because it's a podcast and I'm not writing, you can't see the capital yeah. I. <laughs> um, but it, and it isn't because I don't think improv is valuable. It's that I think the performers don't value the craft that they are creating. And so I wanted to create work that honored the theater from which improv came that gave the reins back to the actor in terms of having complete freedom whether they fell into scene work that is poignantly dramatic or they fell into scene work that is absurdly comedic so that they could really be spontaneous and really be improvising and telling stories so my direction and my vision is to give actors and audiences a place to experience things that don't fall into 
any genre or narrow category, but rather give the voice of theater complete freedom. That's brilliant. How you have a discrepancy between improv and improvisational theater, and you say you watched it fall apart from each other. What do you think are the mechanisms that started that divide? Like, where did that split begin to happen and that eventually came to this almost two separate forms, which I agree with you. There are two separate forms if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So when I talk about improv, I'm really thinking about improv comedy. Um, When I say improv in relationship to myself or my theater, um, I, I really mean the whole gamut, but I think there really are two different animals. Improvisational theater, I think, is a, is a art and it's a craft wherein the actor is playing not only the actor but also the playwright and the director and they're in constant spontaneous collaboration with the other actor who is also a playwright and director. Mm-hmm. It's quite thrilling yeah. um, and it can fail uh, and it can fail miserably um, and I think while uh, improvisational theater was really building an audience and becoming something separate from a a tool for scripted acting. What also happened is people began to understand it, how it works, what audiences want and what's fun for them in a way that made them then deconstruct the work and start writing things about what to do, what to do to do improv which I find innately uncomfortable. (laughs) Because what to do, having a list of things to do to improvise seems like it really runs against the grain of the nature of improvisation. So when people did that and they said, this is how to make improv successful, this is how to do it, they also began to choose for us what successful improvisation looked like. And it really was heavy in the comedy category. So they started to teach us what to do to make audiences laugh. Hmm. And they narrowed and narrowed and narrowed the possibility for it to be anything other than comedy, teaching students to do improv a certain way that created laughter. People then started to do improv with the goal of creating laughter. Um, And teachers of it, I think initially out of uh, uh, a real spirit of inclusion started to say, look, anybody can do it. Anyone can be an improviser. Anyone could do improv. And what then began to happen is they started making it easier and easier for people to do it. Okay. But by making it easier, they also made the world smaller. And mm-hmm. what, it's, what is possible smaller by creating a vocabulary that was really limiting, mm-hmm. by uh, creating forms that were really limiting. And while I think that anyone can be gifted from improv, and improv can give a gift to anyone in the world, mm-hmm. I don't believe that everybody gives a gift to improv. Mm, I see. Right? I see. And so... When I see someone who has a lot of skill and a lot of talent and is really working beautifully hard, um, I feel like they should get that capital I. And I think that it's okay for us to to recognize skill and talent in that way. Because when we live in a world where everyone can do improv, we also live in a world where improv stays mediocre. Yes, exactly. And that's been... That is a thing. I, I have the... 
in my mind, it's 60% of improv is bad, 30% is good, and 10% is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's and that's just my personal experience, but I really don't like that the 60% is, is even a possibility in my mind. <laughs> I wish it was like 90% is good, right. uh, 5% is amazing, and then 5% is like, oh, so for some reason they missed the mark. Why do you think, I mean, well, I guess like what what breeds mediocrity in improv? Is, is what I'm going to form that idea into. Well, I think a lot of things do. Um, but I really think attempting to make a, a art and a craft so accessible to anyone's fingertips, and this is not to say that I don't think anybody should be trying improv. I yeah. think everybody should be trying, and I should. I think it should be taught in elementary and middle yeah. schools just as a part of the curriculum because of the gifts it can give. Yeah. Um, but by trying to create an improviser out of everyone who takes an improv class, I really do think that we've just limited what they are, are allowed to do. We've given such rules and structure around yeah. it that people are trying to meet a mark. So if they don't meet it, the improv fails. And if they do meet it, it's the same show we saw yesterday. Yeah. I think when people get on stage and they're improvising under adrenaline, um, even if they've done really wonderfully in rehearsal and in class, once you're improvising under adrenaline, it's a different animal completely. Yeah. So when people are improvising under adrenaline and working from such a primitive, primal part of their body and their brain, they go to things that they believe will work. And I think that idea of things working is again really the yeah. opposite of, of what our our goal is when we're improvising. Yeah, and we've defined what works under the veil of improv comedy, not improvisational theater, which is excluding a whole bunch of different options and like very intriguing things that we can no longer explore because we've already defined success in one category. So right. the other category isn't even considered or is considered a failure. Exactly. Yeah. And I really think that the magic of improvisational theater is seen through the mistakes. It's following the failures to fruition, yeah. failing and then recovering beautifully that makes it so magical. Um, so in, in my theater and in my training program, I'm really putting my energy into uh, not creating a great improviser who is great when they're improvising with another great improviser but an improviser that can improvise with anyone at any level and make the other person look really good. Someone who is a great improviser to me is someone who's really comfortable and confident on stage knowing that they don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. That is more impressive to me than someone who knows what to say or what to do. Yeah, it's defined as by a lot of people as being present. Yes. Because if if you're even if your mind slips even just a moment into the future, um, a, a single what if flips into your mind, then you're not right there. Exactly. Then you're not right there with your scene partner, and that's the that's the fun. That and you're the... essentially leaving them standing there naked on the stage while you go up into your wheelhouse. Yeah. And by the time you get in the elevator and come back down from the wheelhouse, exit the elevator and come back onto stage, the story is five leagues yeah. below. Yeah. Everything's different. Right. And so that use <laughs> that information isn't useful anymore yeah. anyway um so i 
so I train the improvisers differently, yeah. uh, come at it from a different angle, and really hope to avoid mediocrity at all costs. We do that by not trying to be original, not trying to be unique, but rather going at it with all of our spirit and all of our energy and all of our presence. Yeah. And when we encounter the failures, which are impossible to avoid when we're spontaneously collaborating with another creative person, we, we engage and honor those mistakes so beautifully that it inevitably takes us to a unique and original place. Yeah. So what would you say to the hypothetical listener who is just listening, who has been listening so far and says to themselves, oh my gosh, I have been focusing my, all of my attention on improv comedy and I've, I haven't even regarded the world of improvisational theater. What are steps that the improviser can take to re-engage with this other like beautiful side of improv that has almost kind of been forgotten? Well, I think that some of your listeners right now imagine that at my theater, everyone is dressed in black, <laughs> <laughs> that there's a hazy blue light on yeah. us and we're practically dancing uh, and making guttural sounds. <laughs> so first I would like to say that <laughs> That's such a funny idea. That's a great format right now. Yeah. Um, that not all improvisational theater is necessarily performance art avant-garde. So the first thing to rid yourself of is any preconception about what improvisational theater is mm -hmm. and isn't. And that's going to free you from the trap uh, that some people get in when they've only focused on improv comedy. I think being focused on improv comedy is a wonderful place to be. It depends on if you love it and you're passionate about it. And if you are, that's going to make improv comedy better. If you're not and you want or need more, one of the first things that I would do is not only seek out people who are doing it and exploring it now, but also do some research about where improv came from in the first place. Yeah. Explore the forefathers and foremothers of the craft as it is now. Yeah. Viola Spolin, Ruth Zipporah, Rachel Rosenthal, Keith Johnstone. Mm -hmm. Look at the work that those people have done that improv has built itself from. We can go all the way back to Commedia, Commedia dell'arte. We can I, go all the way back. And when you do that, you begin to discover things that really engage and inspire you. And then when you reach out to those people who are doing that work now or have come from that work, you see what they're doing now from that approach and find something completely new. Yeah. And you can always come to Deep End Theater. <laughs> if you're in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be in Portland. You just have to fly here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the yeah. You're definitely the leader of the theater because you're like throwing those plugs in. <laughs> I don't know how else to live. Yeah, that's true. Um, I actually I want to talk about deep in a little bit just because there's there's something very powerful about saying to yourself, I don't want to answer to anyone else. Not saying that those people are wrong per se. It's right. just that sometimes you have a creative vision that uh, that doesn't. It, it isn't met when it has to filter through another entity and then become itself. So, I, I'm. What, what what are you looking for in theater? Why? What does Deep End do that the other theaters in Portland aren't doing right now? Well, a lot of things. We are radically different. We're radically different in our approach. We're radically different in our, uh, our productions. Uh, our ensemble is run different, and our training program is run differently. 
when I said different the first time I realized the word I needed was differently. I'm yeah. really embarrassed. So um, to start, I pay my actors. Yeah. So my ensemble is paid to perform in the primetime shows. They're paid for their time, they're paid for their skill and their talent and the gift of their energy, which changes a lot of things. Not only uh, is that great for them, but it's great for me because my expectations of their commitment uh, now have permission, I have permission to expect more of them and to hold them accountable for certain things. They also know that because they're earning this wage, uh, they owe that commitment yeah. so we have the relationship in that way they see themselves as performers they see themselves as actors they respect the craft that they're doing because they're being respected as the crafters of that work so i think that was one of the first things that was important to me that performance be paid for their work yeah. i think because it's so fun and because <laughs> anybody can do it air quotes um I think that we have this idea that it's just a privilege to be up there. Mm -hmm. And then we undervalue ourselves when we get to a level where we've been doing it for quite some time and we're very, very good at it. Yeah. And again, that breeds mediocrity. Exactly. You, you stop pushing yourself because you're like, okay, I'm at this level where I can perform on stage. The end. Like, right. Yeah. The other thing I think is that a lot of improv theaters believe that by doing improv, they're taking a risk. <laughs> That's really funny. I haven't even thought of it. It's so delightful, actually. You're right on the money with it, too. Right. Um, so they think that by doing improv alone, they're taking a risk. And at Deep End Theater, we really truly are taking risks. So we are devising new works all the time. We're constantly creating formats that push the boundaries and the barriers. We're not concerned, and we're, in fact... Uh, a little brusque about the idea that you need to entertain or you need to uh, educate your audience because it's my belief that if your audience isn't enjoying the show it's because it's a bad show uh, as opposed to we need to teach them how to like it yeah. um, so what we do instead of, of worrying about that aspect of making sure we're giving them uh, the funny show that they expect is we tell our audience that even we don't know what to expect and we create things that may take us to any corner of the theatrical world. Yeah. So we do that differently. And our philosophy of being actors who specialize in improvisation helps us to do that because it supports us creatively and it allows us to respect ourselves and the work that we do, which creates better work. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, I want to add on top of that, they have a very wonderful new class system uh, the, the the teaching structure of Deep End is really interesting. Can you speak about the teaching structure or just like the way that the classes are set up for a little bit? Because I love it. I sure. think it's great. Sure, yeah. thank you. So one of the things that I don't like about uh, what improv comedy has become in America is this machine of improv students and the way that improv schools are run. I don't like the level system um, and I feel like it gives students the wrong idea. If you give me enough money and if you take enough classes, you're going to get to be in the ensemble. Yeah. It, it's a wonderful money-making tool, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also a lie in that not everyone will eventually be in the ensemble. And if that expectation has to be met at some point, uh, theater owners can feel a lot of pressure to let people in the ensemble who are not ready, who are not great performers. 
and therein, again, we're feeding mediocrity. Yeah, or there's a lot of people who are very passionate who get burned. There's a one particular improv theater that's very large that I'll, I won't name, but I think anyone who knows the improv world knows of that theater that is doing that, like... These students spend over a thousand dollars in this like ambiguous hope to get famous in, kind to of get in famous. big like it's their dream and then yeah, yeah it's just like it's it's instead of working on the craft instead of trying to hone their own skills which is like fascinating sorry right. anyways the, no, the class structure <laughs> so all along those students are being fed a lie that anyone can do it and that if you work hard enough and if you pay enough money, and if you're physically present enough, and if you do enough volunteering, you're going to get in. (laughs) And I feel like there's a huge flaw in that. The focus should never be the product. The focus should be the process in my philosophy. I think that's the philosophy of the work that we do. So having a product-based system Uh, wherein people learn how to do a process-focused work is, again, working against the grain. So in sound improv, uh, which is the approach to improvisation that I use to teach my students, and in the Deep End Theater Training Program, which is our school, we have an intro class for people who have never done improv before who want to dip their toes in, and that's a great way to get into it. But once you've passed the intro level, you enter a class called Foundations, and it's really our most important class in the school system. You take Foundations to learn the vocabulary, but you also take Foundations to hone the skill and to strengthen the muscles. Once you've taken Foundations, you have lots of options because I teach skill-focused workshops that are are one-day workshops where we're working all day on something like intimacy, or exits and entrances, or dramatic improvisation, or comic timing. But you also have a class that is focused on ensemble-based work and devising improv formats, and you have another that focuses on you as an improviser, your strengths and your weaknesses, and how to improve your own instrument and your ability to play it. But at all points throughout the system, students are encouraged to retake foundations. They're given discounts for taking it a second and third time as they go through the system because we want it to be as important and easily accessible as possible. The reason that I do that is because, again, I think the greatest improvisers can improvise with anyone at any level. And I think that they should be doing that as they're training, not just when they're done training and now here you are on stage and now here's someone in level one to try to make look good, but rather we're training that muscle all along. Mm -hmm. The other reason we do it is because I don't think it makes sense to learn the basic skills of something and then never work on them that way again. It's like going to the gym to do arms and you do your arms workout and then you never work out your arms again. I've done arms. So now I'm going to do legs, and now I'm going to do abs. I've done abs, legs, and arms. I'm never going to work those muscles again. Um, We can't stay strong that way. Everything that we do in improvisational theater is built on the foundation. It's built on the basic skills that we learn in those level one classes. So why not make that class the most important class? And why not fill it with people of every level of experience so that they're constantly learning and working in the same kind of environment that they're gonna be playing in on stage? Yeah. 
people of all kinds of different levels, yeah. people from all different kinds of backgrounds. In a level system, you, you move with a group that is learning at your level. And therefore, as you all get better, you're all working in that kind of same bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we do it differently. Yeah, and that's, I, I love the system also because it holds skilled improvisers accountable to not only be good representatives to the, the newer improvisers, but also yeah, to engage with the newer improvisers. And then it also it encourages newer improvisers because if, if, when you take a level one improv class, you know, the, there's not a lot of skilled improvisers there, and so there are some bad scenes. And you can tell when a bad scene is happening. It's pretty obvious almost every single time. But when there's a new improviser and they get up on stage with a skilled improviser, and the new improviser and the skilled improviser have a really good scene together. Well, that new improviser is just like, it's like, oh. Like, that's what it can be. It, that's what it can be, exactly. And so it, it propels people forward. And it's also just very inclusive. That's right. like that's And that's a huge thing that well, that is in the collective consciousness of not only improvisers, but theater, theater theaters in general right now is inclusion. How do we be more inclusive? How do we get like more different life experiences that wouldn't necessarily see themselves on stage to the stage so they can be the people that other people with their life experiences can see on stage. Absolutely. (laughs) All of that is true. And I love that idea that if you have a group of level one improvisers, a star uh, rises to the top and they begin to create an impression of themselves based on being really good in that level one class, which (laughs) (laughs) which sometimes changes the way that they're able to access learning as they move forward. Um, But when you have that same experience level of an improviser in a class with someone who has put so much skill and effort and energy into the craft, Uh, there's so much less ego involved in the learning process and people who are new to it are more interested in engaging in learning and really learning it than feeding their ego and being the best one in the class. But we also have our ensemble taking the foundations classes. We're all taking it. Um, I take foundations class. It's really important to be in that environment, to be with those skills in that kind of engaged way and not just giving it lip service. Yeah. Oh yeah, tonight I'm bringing to the show good listening. How long has it been since you really practiced it? So at our theater, we're practicing it regularly. That's really important. And you, you touched on something, which is the idea of dissolving the ego, which I'm fascinated with in theater, specifically because you have to have some ego to bring yourself to the stage in the first yeah, place. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you have to have, like, a, a bit of it. Yeah. Um, and then it, I think what a lot of performers who stay within the theatrical world for a little bit realize is to perform uh, the most proficiently, you need to slowly start removing the egoic tendencies that you have in your brain before, during, and after a show. Yes. Uh, I, I guess this will turn into what advice do you have for, uh, for dissolving, for getting rid of that ego, for improvisers specifically, I'll say. Yeah. Well, I guess I don't think that ego is necessarily or innately bad. Yes. I think that it's how we use it. Mm-hmm. Um, with great ego comes great responsibility. <laughs> I think that you have to have a lot of ego to be an artistic director. I think that to be the leader of any artistic vision, you have to believe that your artistic vision is worthy of following, Hmm. which means you place a lot of value on yourself and your own ideas. So I think that it's not as much about dissolving ego as it is about 
learning how to share space with other people who are equally as valuable as you are. Okay. So seeing uh, the beauty and the value in other people's creativity as much as and more than you uh, you uh, celebrate your own hmm. is really the trick, I yeah. think. Yeah, and that's, so it's almost like, we, it's funny because it's like, it's giving credence to other people's egos almost a little bit more, which is like inherently non-egoic. I don't know, we could, get out, we could go down this <laughs> trail. Um, we're a little bit past the half hour, and I always like asking, is there anything we haven't talked about in terms of improv, uh, owning a theater, running a theater, classes, the theater world uh, that you want to talk about? I think that the last thing that I'd like to say, in short, is that in the theater world, I think it's very common for uh, theater owners and artistic directors to be really hard on each other, especially if your communities are cross-pollinating um, or their corners are touching in any way, like they are in Portland. And I think it's, it's important for us all to remember how hard it is to be an artistic director, yeah. that the intentions behind leading a group of people to opportunities to perform and to share their voice is good. Um, and that a lot of times we have to say no to people. We have to um, curb enthusiasm sometimes. We have to not let people into the ensemble because they're not ready. And sometimes that bleeds, bleeds that breeds uh, rumors and gossip and distrust and it's really important to me that other leaders here, not just in Portland, but everywhere in the world, that supporting each other, lifting each other up, remembering always that people who are running theaters are working hard to do something good. And if they're brusque or if they're difficult or if they're reclusive, it's likely because they're working so hard mm -hmm. and not because they're difficult people yeah. or brusque people or they're secretly or maniacal. People. <laughs> right, exactly. And that would be the last thing that I want to say, especially to anyone who's aspiring towards being an artistic director. The world is full of that kind of judgment. And I would meet those people in those situations rather with curiosity and be really open to that very, very difficult reminder that we're all human beings who got into the theater for a reason. And usually it's because of passion and desire and because of inspiration. Yeah, and that's one of the core tenets of sound improv is curiosity over judgment, which is a really, just a beautiful way to look at the world, actually. I mean, it's because it's you're inherently judgmental just to be alive to survive it's like oh no sound in the bushes like i have to be judgmental of that sound <laughs> of the bushes like that thing might that thing might eat me yeah um but yeah and there's there's a th i think when you explore art there is a way to sort of cultivate that mindset and flip judgment into curiosity in a way that's like very health healthy for you and the people around you and then the people who come to see you on stage which is like what that's it's about having a healthy experience right it's about that's life that's theater that's art <laughs> if you're inspired your audiences will be inspired and it's really simple as that creating an environment wherein people can feel safely inspired you don't have to work hard to get audiences in there you don't have to teach them how to like the work you're doing because it's just beautiful yeah that's 
an amazing note to end on. <laughs> uh, Domika, if someone's looking for the deep end online, uh, do you have any plugs that you can give uh, or just any plugs at all? <laughs> yes, please find us at deependtheater.com. Nice and easy. <laughs> just like that, there's lots of um, interesting information about classes, about our teachers, and about um, our programs. So please yeah. dig in and enjoy. Social medias? Yeah. We do have all kinds okay, of social medias them, yeah. that the social media person <laughs> Artistic directors get a social media person. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> We're on Instagram and Twitter. And Facebook, I think. I, I know on Facebook. Yeah. Because, yeah, I like it. Um, and then I like ending with this question. Uh, can you give me one recommendation of anything at all? Absolutely anything. So a book, a movie, a quote, a way of life, a thing to eat, just whatever. My, I recommend you read 13 Clocks by James Thurber. Okay. And right. you'll know why after you read it. Okay. I uh, will just leave it at that. I've never even heard of it, but ooh, that's really, really exciting. Uh, Damika, thank you again for sitting down with me. It was awesome. You're really, welcome. really, really. Uh, I just feel energized after all these interviews. Um, you did just drink some sparkly water. I, yeah, and it's, it's... It has a little sugar in it. Yeah. Um... You, listener, can find this You can find this podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud and iTunes. Listener, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have an excellent rest of your day. And that's how